Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Good morning. May I have my welcome uh, to David's. My name is Will Allen. I'm the uh, assistant minister here. And would you please take up your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. We're into the, the closing chapters now of this book. Two Samuel chapter 20. David has just returned as king, and then this happens, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do most more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Kerathites, and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and, he went for, and as he went forward it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And Joab and Abishai's brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever follows Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. When the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field, threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Marker. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Marker. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. And a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. 
And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Job answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, and the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelophites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. These are God's words to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm finding this season of Trinity life to be very encouraging. Um, of course, there are difficulties and, and challenges as a church family, but there, there are growing friendships, there are new faces, there's a love for God's word, there's a desire for, for, for holiness and service. It, it's wonderful, isn't it? But it's as we, I think, look at the wider church, uh, I suppose we're reminded that the picture of God's church is a bit more complicated, isn't it? There's a, a variety of colors and shades uh, to church life. And we know in some areas the church is declining, numbers dwindling, the faithful few are finding themselves alone in, in large empty buildings. And, that, and that's in gospel teaching churches too. In other churches there's been scandals and sin, and uh, whether from top uh, or whether, whether in the congregation, uh, hurt and division. You know, the, the church in many ways can look weak, can't it? And it hurts. Just, just recently, a high-profile minister in England has been suspended. He's undergoing investigation. And he'd had a big impact on my life as a teenager. It hurts. The, the church looks weak. And just because those things might not be true for us here at the moment, it, it doesn't mean they haven't been in the past or won't be in the future. God's church can often look like a, a crumbling castle. Now, there's plenty of those in this country, aren't there? The, the stones collapsing in, the, the, the roofs in tatters, the shape of the great tower reminds us of a better age, a, an age of glory and prestige. But as we see the moss growing and, and the rain wearing away its dignity, we, we know that that time is not now. The church it looks weak. And we're going to see more of that uh, this morning with David's kingdom. But God's word is, is here not to leave us despondent. Now, firstly, it's going to help us be realistic about the state of the church. But we'll also find encouragement, encouragement and grace, even, even for a weak and crumbling church. Now, here in 2 Samuel, the glory days really are behind us. Up until chapter 11, David was on the, on the ascendancy. Enemies were defeated. The ark, if you remember, was back in his new capital, Jerusalem. Justice and equity was being administered. It was a united kingdom. 
But since this sin of chapter 11, we've seen things fall apart. So it kind of felt like that, hasn't it? Week on week, we've had sin, rebellion, murder, his family eating itself. We've just had this attempted coup of Absalom. And perhaps things are coming back together. Last week, if you're here in the evening, we saw the king cross the Jordan. He was honored by enemies and loyal subjects. He'd managed to persuade the whole of Judah to follow him. And he'd put Amasa in charge of the army. And David is being restored as king. But even at the end of last week, we saw things weren't quite straightforward, were we? Israel were annoyed by what Judah had done. They were unsettled by how it all worked out. Uh, And as we long for things just to calm down a bit, we get to chapter 20. And now this is the last chapter, as we'll see, of of 2 Samuel that works in chronological order. uh, That's been describing the rise, the fall, and the restoration of the kingdom. Uh, Chapters 21 to 24, we'll see, are more of a conclusion that don't fit the chronology of the book. Um, And there's there's kind of this, oh dear, not again, kind of feel about chapter 20. I don't know if that's how you felt on first reading. It's not the glorious kind of finish we had hoped for. Because once again, because of sin, God's words show us a weak-looking kingdom. It's a weak-looking kingdom. So we're going to spend a bit of time on this morning, getting a glimpse once again of this kingdom. And we see it in two ways. We see it through two men. There's Sheba. Sheba who makes this overt attack. And then there's Joab who just lives in covert rebellion. So let's take Sheba first. This, this overt attack on God's king. An overt attack on God's king. His, his rebellion, this is open and blatant refusal to have David as king, isn't it? Verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Now try and picture the scene, okay? David, he's, he's surrounded by his, his loyal soldiers who've been fighting with him against Absalom. There's also this large contingent of the tribe of Judah and some of Israel and they've just crossed the Jordan River. It's a joyful scene. The king has returned. And then this, this other mass of people arrived, if you remember last time. Um, a, a representative of Israel, of the, the, other t- of the ten tribes, there's this great throng of people coming together. And perhaps the leaders uh, of these different tribes are in discussion and disputing, but still David is here. The king has returned. But then this man, Sheba, stands up. I don't know, perhaps he's in the higher level discussions, perhaps he's not, but he's had enough. He he stands and he blows a trumpet. Suddenly a a, a hush falls over the mass of people. You know, is this a call to war? What's going on? Why the trumpet? And then Sheba speaks and declares his message. And it's clear, isn't it? Abandon David. He's not the man for us. And David might be the the king anointed by God. He might be the one who's brought us success and glory in the past. The one whom God had promised to bring an everlasting kingdom. He might even be the one we swore to serve and uphold earlier. But it's kind of like he says, I don't care anymore. I'm done with him. Can God really provide through this king? Surely there must be better ways. A different way of getting what God has promised. And then this is the message the Israelites jump on board with. Verse 2, so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. They've, they've literally just been chatting about how they have shares in the king and were speaking of bringing him back at the end of chapter 19 and now they've gone off with Sheba. It's quick, fickle change. 
You know, it's like a, one of those political conferences where the, the leader's on the podium, but the members start whispering about a vote of no confidence, rumors of a new leader. They would just rather have a different king. And this isn't just rejecting David here. This is also about God, because to reject David means they don't want God's way of doing things. God, we know, has promised through David, a blessing through David, and they want to do things their way. And the kingdom suddenly was once again crumbling. What had looked promising was once again weak. The numbers were dropping. People were walking out the door. The crowds were heading elsewhere. It's a desperate moment, isn't it? And this is not just a problem then, it's, it's so clearly a big problem for us at the moment, isn't it, in the church. We live in a world where God's blessing in God's king is a despised message. You know, our society, it's completely rejected God and his king. You want blessing? You want what God once offered? Well, the answer isn't through Jesus. Definitely not. That's, a, that's, that's kind of a fairy tale. It's a made-up message to oppress the masses. No, the answer, the answer you find it in you. That's where we are, isn't it? You be you. You find blessing and expressing who you, who you are however you want. That's where it's to be found. Self-affirmation. And slowly the church pews empty as, as people find they'd rather, I don't know, be at the Pride March on Sunday than at church. They'd rather believe in themselves than deny themselves and follow the king. We see it perhaps in the expanding religion of Islam. Jesus, he's, he's just a prophet among many, isn't he? Muhammad's taken prize position. It's the same message. We have no portion in that Jesus. Come find what you want in Muhammad. You don't need a weak crucified savior. You need a warrior prophet. Or it's even there in, in liberal Christianity. Even though Jesus is there in name, He's been so distorted and changed into our image, he's a different man. You know, we can pick and choose what Jesus did and didn't say, whether we trust his apostle or not, so we end up having actually no portion of the Jesus of the Bible. We follow a different Jesus. And so the numbers in Orthodox churches decline. The once noisy and bustling kirk is left empty. A weak, it's weak, isn't it? It's a weak-looking church. And the arrival of Sheba, coming so swiftly on the, uh, on the heels of Absalom, reminds us we shouldn't be surprised by this. It's been the experience of the church for thousands of years. It's there in the New Testament, too, Paul writing to Timothy puts it like this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's Sheba, isn't it? So we mustn't be surprised. However hard it is to see, people often follow the call to another Messiah. The thing is, there's also a real temptation to follow them. As the crowd moves in a different direction, it's very hard to swim against the flow, isn't it? Because often the new pretender to the throne looks a lot much more appealing. I can give you your heart's desire. I can give you what God promises without all those problems that come with following his king. And our hearts are tempted. Perhaps friends of yours look like they're living the good life without Jesus. You know, it looks easy. It looks comfortable. They do what they like. They sleep with whoever they want. They, you know, being true to yourself seems like a good option. 
Well, we need to remember who God's king actually is, don't we? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's not dead like Absalom nor Sheba. He's not a newfangled ideology that kind of appears today and will be overtaken by something else tomorrow. Pretenders to the throne come and go, but not Jesus. He's here to stay. God has promised salvation in his name and his name alone. He is a king to be, to be served. Who, sorry, who served his people. He served his people. He didn't come to be served. May we be like Peter who realized there is nowhere else to go. Eternal life is found only in Jesus Christ. In the face of over attack, let's stick with God's king. So it's a weak looking kingdom, isn't it? Especially with Sheba, this over attack on God's king. But there's this second way, and it's through Joab. Joab, this is a covert rebellion against God's king. Now, I've been intrigued by Joab over these months in, uh, in 2 Samuel. He's a man who's appeared again and again through the story. I kind of want to film about him. He's, he's David's nephew, and he's been the leader of David's army. And he's been right at the center of everything going on, hasn't he? He murdered Abner back in chapter 3. He helped David kill Uriah. He was instrumental in getting Absalom back, uh, but then was willing to kill him even after the king's instructions. He then rebuked David for bringing shame on the soldiers. And then last we heard of him was he had finally lost the senior position. Back in chapter 19, uh, David had replaced him with Amasa as commander of the army. And on the surface, I don't think we found anyone more loyal to the king. He has fought the king's battles. He's killed his enemies. He's made sure anyone who stands in David's way is put aside. Because he's a man uh, who gets the results whatever the cost. And yet here, once again, I think we see the true colors of this guy. He might look like he loves the king. But in fact, he's just like Sheba. He rejects the king in the way, his ways. He doesn't trust David. He always goes his own way, however he wants. So David has put Amasa in charge. And in verse 4, David sends Amasa up to go and get some troops together. Now for some reason, we don't know why, Amasa takes too long or David's three-day window is too short. But, but the text doesn't suggest any foul play here. It doesn't make us think Amasa's gone off the rails or rejected David as king already. He's just, he's just late. David's cross because he thinks Sheba's going to get away. Uh, now here uh, we see Joab is still out of favor with David because David picks Joab's brother, Abishai. Uh, he sends Abishai to pursue Sheba. And we still don't know whether Joab's there or not. We know Joab's men are there, but, but is Joab? Well, Abishai's men, they're on the hunt for Sheba. They get to Gibeon and here Amasa's caught up with them finally. And now we find out about Joab. Middle of verse 8. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it, it fell out. Now I think we can presume it fell out means it falls into his left hand. Now at this point, Amasa doesn't know Joab's not in charge, and Joab is making all the signs of friendship and brotherly affection. He, he asks how he's doing. He goes to greet him. He does so with his right hand, so Amasa thinks uh, it's all friendly. But then as he does, he drives the sword, hidden in his left, deep into Amasa's stomach, and then lets him drop to the floor, bleeding to death, and just leaves him. It's brutal, isn't it? Absolutely brutal. 
Now, was Joab jealous? Did Joab think Amasa was still treacherous because he'd worked for Absalom? Or was he just getting revenge on him for taking, uh, for taking his place? I don't know. Um, but Joab once again takes matters into his own hands. Once again, he's rejecting the king's instructions and he's killing the king's man. You know, this feels like gang behavior, doesn't it? It's the kind of the way we'd expect the mafia to work. Not God's kingdom. Yes, Joab looks loyal to David. But under the surface, it's all a sham, isn't it? It's his way or the highway. And the mighty men of David know this. They, they see Amasa bleeding on the ground. They stop to look. And, and, and Joab's men have to persuade them. You know, if, you, if you're for David, then you're actually for Joab. Follow Joab. Yes, however it might look. Yes, Amasa's dead. But, but don't worry about it. Yes, he's lying on the floor. He's uh, dying. But seriously, just, just follow Joab. Joab's for David, so go with him. This feels less and less believable, doesn't it? So one of Joab's men picks up a master and chucks him off the road into a field, covers him up. Get rid of the evidence, and people are a bit more persuadable. You know, having heard recently of a decorated Australian uh, soldier committing war crimes in Afghanistan, you know, we, we, we know these things go on. We can imagine it, can't we? It's, it's unjust killings, it's, it's cover-ups, it's, it's loyal soldiers speaking out for you. That's what's going on here. Joab's like that. He has one mode of doing life, doesn't he? And it's violent, it's aggressive. If someone's in the way, he just gets rid of them. There is no mercy here, no grace. And it happens again as the story goes on. He heads off, finally catches up with Sheba at this town of uh, Abel of Beth Marker. That is right in the northern uh, end of Israel. They've marched a long way. And, and right away, he gets to work. And what does he do? Well, obviously trying to utterly destroy the town. There's no mercy again. And the irony, when he's asked by this wise woman, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And did you notice his reply? Far bit from me, far bit uh, that I should swallow up or destroy. Really, you know, does he have no clue here? Is he just blind to his activities or so proud he cannot admit it? Because that's all he seems to do, isn't it? Destroy. And once again, we see here, his rejection of God's king and his words. God's word states in Deuteronomy that if you're attacking any city, you should offer terms of peace to it. But not Joab. He's getting up the mound. He's battering the wall. Thankfully, this woman comes with a biblical wisdom. Let's work this out before you destroy our city and our people. And so Sheba's surrendered. Well, his, his head is anyway. And, and Joab returns. And it's a, it's a story of violent methods, isn't it? and seemingly good results. But here Joab is finally clear to us. He's a man who, who although is part of the kingdom on the outside, he's part of the leadership team, he seems to work for the king, but really he's all about himself. The kingdom's on his terms. He's a man after power. He seems to get a thrill through a bitter, merciless treatment of other people. This is the covert rebellion against God's king. And once again, people follow him. And Job's not alone, is he? Sadly, church history is full of men and women who've looked loyal on the surface, but have left God's people beaten and abused in their wake. Now, I'm not talking here about the normal spectrum of sin of, of our leaders. All our leaders will make mistakes, but they should be above reproach. But that's not Job, is it? He was blatantly and systematically acted in a way contrary to this king. His character is clearly not suitable for the role. He should, David should never have left him in leadership. 
And it's part of our recent history. We, we shouldn't be surprised by this. There have always been covert rebellions against God's king. The church is weak looking. You know, there have been the, the high profile ones, haven't there? Like people like Ravi Zacharias, an apologist, Christian leader, leaving a trail of a, abused and sexually exploited women across the world. Jonathan Smythe, the church leader and Christian camp leader in the UK, leaving abused and spiritually scarred men in his wake. I think it's most dangerous when we believe the lie that the kingdom is all about the results. Because it's then we make excuses for their behavior. Oh, that's just the way they are, we say. And like that, that young man, we find ourselves saying, you know, whoever favors Joab and whoever's for David, let him follow Joab, knowing full well he's just murdered an innocent man on the way. But not only can we end up making excuses, we can also end up walking in their footsteps. Now, probably not as blatant or as brutal as Job or those examples, but we do begin to reject the king in our hearts, even if we're very loyal to him on the surface. You know, we come to church, we, we talk about the Bible, we sound like a follower of Jesus, but actually our lives are lived our way and like Joab we actually become very hard hearted towards the other people he's made did God did God really say love your enemies surely it's, surely it's okay I decimate their company and leave them penniless or did God really say I don't, know, don't take vengeance surely it's okay if I, if I gossip and, and, and you know, rip their reputations to shred on Instagram or I'm, I'm violent with my children it's a growing lack of compassion, isn't it? And it puts us at odds with God's way. Come back to him for mercy. Don't keep hardening your heart. Seek forgiveness and change by God's power before you cause more damage. Joab. Joab, a covert rebellion against God's king. So it's a weak-looking kingdom, isn't it? Attacks from outside, covert rebellions within its ranks. But thankfully, that's not the full story. Because yes, the church may be weak-looking, but that's not all there is. It's weak-looking, but God's power is at its core. God's power is at its core. With all that's gone on, God's kingdom is still standing. We shouldn't miss that. And we see it in these final three verses. We hear about all the people in charge. We've got Joab, Abaniah, Adoram, Jehoshaphat, and Shiva. There's still Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. And this list is virtually the same as one we had in back at chapter 8. When David's rule was reaching its peak, and the people are, are nearly the same. Through it all, God's kingdom still stands. Through all the ups and downs, God has held this fragile, weak-looking kingdom together. His king is still in power despite the rebellions. His people are still as one kingdom despite the factions and the arguments. God's kingdom, it holds fast. And it's all because of his promises. It's the enduring power of 2 Samuel 7, where God promised a house to David, a kingdom that will endure. Yes, it's weak-looking. God's power is at its core. But these final few verses also show us that the story can't end with David's. We're encouraged that the kingdom still stands, but it has lost its glory here, hasn't it? The castle still exists, but it has crumbled and is decaying. This summary of, 
uh, chapter 20 misses a line that was front and center back in chapter 8. And it's this, from chapter 8 it said this, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That line has gone. David is he's kind of crawling to the finish line, isn't he? We can, he can hardly keep his family together, let alone the whole kingdom. Strikingly, Joab's still in power in verse 23. David just can't get rid of him. And the fruits of his sin are there for all to see. And we didn't mention verse 3 of chapter 20 yet. That just sits there as David returns home to Jerusalem. But it's a desperately sad verse, isn't it? Ten women used as concubines by David in the first place, then as, as raped political pawns by Absalom, now housed, and they're just left to live as widows. Yes, they're provided for, but they're neglected. It's the fruit of David's sins there for all to see. So as we come to this end of the story of David, I think we're left, left pulled in two directions, trusting and yet longing. You know, God's power is at its core. We know we can trust God, that he he will prevail, the kingdom will stand, that his purposes will be victorious. We're trusting, but we're also left longing, longing for a better king, a greater king, a king of righteousness and justice who really will will rule uh, with equity. And the thing is, that better king for us has come, hasn't he? He came for a first time in weakness, humility, Jesus Christ came to save us from ourselves, save us from that sin and rebellion, to bring forgiveness and mercy as we dwelt on last week. And so we are trusting. We're trusting him in the face of his church. Uh, And and that can be hard at times, can't it? We know that can be hard. When we've been at the bitter, painful end of other people's sin, people who've who've said they're working in the name of Jesus, it can be a real fight to take those small trembling steps after Jesus and and not abandon Jesus because of those who call themselves his followers. Or, 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 Or it's a battle just to keep trusting even when our friends and family have fallen away and gone after false gods. The the temptation is just there to give up and, and go after the other voices. But we need to be reminded of God's extraordinary love for us. That he hasn't left us with a king like David. He's given us a better king. A king so full of love that he was willing to die. So that we might not have to. A king who's so full of compassion for us. His weakness brings us strength. He's our treasure possession, isn't he? We trust. We trust We follow what he says, even if it's to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, because he's worthy of our trust, even in the midst of this weak-looking church. And we do see his kingdom flourishing, don't we? He is showing us that he's at work. We see lives restored, don't we? We see families healed. We see friendships strengthening, holiness growing. God's power is within us. He is at our core. And so we keep trusting We keep walking with Jesus. We keep following and putting him and what he says first, knowing he is the king who will bring equity and justice. He is the king who brings life and an abundance. But like God's people in David's time, we're not just left trusting, we are left longing, aren't we? As we see the the impacts of sin and rebellion around us, we, we want the king to return. 
to fully restore his people, to bring the justice for the weak, to rescue those scarred and hurt, to bring peace so we might not find ourselves caught in the tangle of sin any longer. Instead, to find ourselves around the throne. That's what we want, isn't it? Covered in the white garments of Jesus' righteousness, worshipping him, worshipping the lamb and, and receiving the portion, receiving the inheritance that's only found in God's King. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. It's a weak-looking kingdom, but God's power is at its core. Amen.